Coming up next on Twitch, this week in computer hardware, 400 watts, $700. It's the fastest video card ever. 18 million tablets, and Robert Heron helps with home theater PC builds. What do you do with an old G5 Power Mac? All coming up next on Twitch. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 110, recorded March 10th, 2011. Home theater and hard drive help. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch. Welcome to Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm your host, Patrick Norton, joined actually not by Ryan Trout, who is somewhere in Jamaica where the bandwidth is low, the sun is hot, and I hear the beaches are delightful. But I am actually in a rather unusual location. I'm in Robert Heron's kitchen somewhere in San Leandro, <laughs> California. Yes, we are hanging out today. How's everyone doing? I'm doing good, man. I always like seeing Robert Heron's absolutely meticulous and perfect home theater setup. Oh, oh, yeah. It's a cobble a collection of uh, just different gear I've had for a while. But um, I'm definitely buying a new TV this year, but I really want to get a home, a home theater AV receiver, though. That's the next thing on the list, I think. Finally, a real receiver with real speakers, if my neighbors can tolerate it. So You're going to drive your neighbors completely insane. So D8000, I, I think that is the number one 46 to 55-inch LCD right now to get the new one that's actually finally shipping. It's the first of the 2011 series TVs of the, the high-end ones that I've seen actually ship. Uh, it shouldn't, I'd say LG and Panasonic shouldn't be further that far behind in terms of getting their products out too. So it's the next couple of months are going to be really fun. There's going to be a lot of uh, terrific new hardware to check out and compare to what came out last year. Basically, all the stuff that we previewed at CES back in January, it's starting to finally reach the store shelves. Yeah, it's always amazing. Uh, if you don't follow along with Techzilla, which is my main gig, uh, Robert Heron's one of my co-hosts on that with along with Veronica Belmont. And actually, it's kind of funny. We normally don't go near financial stuff, but uh, you had a really good story that, that I thought was, you were, you were actually moaning about it right before we started recording. What was the Microsoft wealth story that you had? Uh, it was just a linked story coming out of Hard SCP, and it's, I guess, an article from Buzz Blog. Uh, Paul McNamara wrote this up, and apparently if you had invested, oh, 100 shares of Microsoft at the $21 offering price the day it went 25 years ago on the market, uh, it would have mushroomed into 28,800 shares over the course of nine stock splits and be worth about three quarters of a million dollars today. <laughs> Uh, or if you would have cashed out at the peak back in 1999, you would have had a cool 1.4 million, which is uh, just to let you know, sometimes the stock market, if you, if you see a company you like and you think they're going to be around for a while, throw, throw a few bucks down and get some stocks and uh, you never know. It's, I think it beats gambling in some ways, although it's just another form of it. So. <laughs> and on to the hardware news. Yes. 
BasicFur.com. There is a new, it, it seems like we didn't have one of these for at least a month. Uh, not a graphics card review, but a, a world's fastest. The AMD Radeon AC6990 4 gigabit dual CPU came in graphics card. Ryan Shrout posted the review, I think just before he left. Um, quote, the Radeon AC6990 4 gigabyte easily takes the crown of the fastest graphics card on the planet and unseats AMD's previous flagship, the Radeon AC5970. Um, yeah, it's actually pretty obscene. Uh, it, it, the words ridiculous come to mind to describe the performance of this. It is a 400 watt graphics card. Graphics, the GPU alone, this GPU is sucking down 400 watts. It's going to run you $700 right now. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculously fast. Um, it is also ridiculous. I think 700 is, is rid ridiculously expensive for a GPU. Um, but in single PCI Express slot, it is uh, support for as many as five monitors. And let's see, NVIDIA has not tried very hard to hide the fact that they are coming out with a dual GPU option to compete very soon. And if they can get two GTX 570 class GPUs on a single PCB, they might have a strong competitor. But until then, we have to hand it to AMD for combining awesome performance with a knot of nods, excuse me, a lot of nods to the overclocking and enthusiast communities. Totally. So, yeah, it's a pretty amazing card. Um, it literally, you know, we talked about it, massive cooling system, two GPUs and a single PCI Express slot. I'm looking at like four display ports coming out the back of that and uh, alongside a standard uh, uh, DVI port. It is, it is a big, thick, fat card. Um, but if you want the ultimate in GPUs and you've got 700 bucks, that is the one to roll with right now, the 6990 from AMD. I want oh to pair my. two of those together in the same system. I think that would just be done. And maybe four four displays or so, maybe 27-inch monitors, turn sideways, tile well, them up. It's like we were talking about with Kyle Monson from Hard OCP. The only people who really need a 1,200-watt power supply are somebody like trying to, to run a pair of you know, 6990s or like nine hard drives or something. Tablets, which everybody, including myself, thought that were going to be dead for the iPad 2. 18 million tablets shipped in 2010. Apple apparently had 83% of those. Um, E-reader shipments quadrupled to more than 12 million. IDC is reporting about that, the big uh, study group. I was kind of impressed. Are, are you currently with tablet, Robert? I am without. I bought one as a gift for a family member, but I personally don't own one, but I might just have to break down. That'll be one of the probably the purchases I'll make this year is to finally break down and get that tablet of some sort for a variety of things. Hey, one, it's the apps and just having that larger interface. But two, I see, at least in terms of home theater, I see how it's being used now in, in increasingly ways in terms of either home control or as just the ultimate touchscreen interface for a variety of either control apps or or home theater related control apps as well. Everything from the custom install stuff to the actual TV applications themselves. So that, that's the part that kind of gets me excited is just the uses people are putting it to beyond, you know, uh, just a fun portable way just to browse the web or, you know, basic surfing or application use. You're saying it's not just the ultimate bathroom browsing PC? Uh, yeah, it's a, probably a majority of it, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> but once you get your calendar, your email, and your contacts all synced up to a portable device like that, and you can kind of just have that data in your hand, it's nice having the larger interface, especially for web browsing, I think, is really where I'd, I'd use it more than, say, going to my workstation. Although, uh, it's all good. I, I really would like that bigger inter interface, though, for just a home control situation, using some of the apps I use to drive my home theater gear, seeing that on a bigger interface, which is 
I don't know. It's it's not the most critical need I have right now, but uh, it's one I'm definitely interested in pursuing. Well, it's just it's it's there's almost an elegance when you when you have a 10 inch screen, you can do some really interesting stuff with the display. Um, you know, you still don't have any tactile response on that one. We should also point out the Zoom reviews. That's up on uh, one of the first Zoom reviews is up on PC Per. They've shown up on a gadget and everywhere else. That's a, going to be interesting to see how well that does because of course uh, we're taping this on Thursday, March 10th, Friday, March 11th. The iPad 2 goes on sale. And it's going to be, I, I haven't gotten hands on with one yet. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, Ryan, not Ryan Trout, Ryan from over at GDGTGadget.com has had one in his hands. And I'm longing to see what he thinks about the performance on that one. And should we talk about WiMAX, right? Everybody's favorite, you know, wireless broadband option alternative, uh, which is basically uh, uh, Clearwire. Um, uh, it's basically, there's a, a company called Clearwire was essentially a partner or, or an offshoot of Sprint um, doing WiMAX to the home. And they're getting sued because they've been promising everybody a minimum of um, one megabit per second and uh, unlimited data. And apparently in the middle of 2010, they started throttling data. So the end result of that is a big fat uh, lawsuit that's came out. And apparently the, I, I want to say the CEO retired was the other thing that came down out of that one. But uh, where is it? Do, 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 do. Yeah, no limits on, <laughs> quote, usage is unlimited, believe it, said Clearwire. But apparently uh, a lot of customers are claiming that A, they were missed less, and B, throwing around words like fraud and Ponzi scheme. The the article I'm looking at is up at ArsTactica.com. So um, the plaintiffs accused Clearwire of selling subscriptions it can't support in hopes of building out its network sometime in the future to, quote, make good on its promises. Apparently, uh, Clearwire is running out of cash sometime in the middle of this year. So it, uh, once again, uh, the whole idea of competition for internet access to the curb has been slammed in the teeth. So, Terrible. Yeah, and it's and unfortunate, right? Because, you know, everybody's, you know, the, there's this whole battle going on for net neutrality. And, of course, um, you know, everybody's like, the free market will save us. And it'd be great if we actually had a viable alternative to, you know, cable here in Northern California in terms of performance. There are, there are a couple options. And if you happen to live in a large apartment building in San Francisco, um, there's some DSL that's pretty good if you're in an area covered by DSL. But... Um, that'd be interesting. I wonder if some of the high-speed DSLs finally made it to San Leandro. It still isn't in Alameda. Well, some buildings are wired with high-speed connections that are distributed via Ethernet to all the all the dwellers within the buildings, and that's even here in the East Bay too, and San Francisco. But right, well, it's in Oakland, it's in San Francisco, and I want to say you need at least 21 units in the building for them to build it out. That's not um, a home solution, though. And and I'm, is is the company uh, Clearwire? Providing WiMAX support, like at San Francisco's airport, where they currently are offering that service. Do you know offhand? I don't know if it's Clearwire doing that or not. Are they the only company doing WiMAX deployment right now? Yeah, for all intents and purposes, uh, the only WiMAX company is Clearwire. So. Yeah, that's just a bummer. I mean, it, we need more. We need more choices for wired and wireless internet access to get this cost down. It's yeah. just that's uh, just something I'm surprised more people aren't up in arms about. Although there are a lot of greater issues in the world nowadays, but still. I think affordable internet access is one of those things that people should have, like running water or access to it or, you know, like electricity and <laughs> things like that. It should be a basic utility that we all have access to of decent speed. Yeah, that would be nice. I'm not holding my breath anytime soon. Um, 
<laughs> pan through the nose, though, and I see other countries with, uh, granted, uh, more dense populations as far as, you know, how it's spread out. But it seems like everybody's getting a better system than we have here. There's just uh, too much too much corruption. I don't want to say corruption, but just too much, too many people with too much of the market <laughs> controlling it the way they want to not everyone's benefit but their own, if that makes any sense. I think there was some sense in there somewhere. I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> if I say anything either way, I'm either going to be labeled a communist or, or something even worse. So I'm going to back away from that. I am going to move forward something really, really cool. If you haven't heard about it, and I, I can't believe you haven't heard about it if you're a, if you're a regular Twit listener or, or Twitch listener, Squarespace. Um, it's a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website, blog, pretty much any kind of site you want to host on the web. Squarespace has the tools to bring it to life without spending a ton of cash. Uh, and I should point out, if you're familiar with Squarespace and if you're following Twitter or TechZilla, you've certainly heard about Squarespace before. And if not, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. But one big thing has changed. Instead of giving you a code, you, you basically dump a code in to get a discount. That's gone. You're going to go to squarespace.com slash twitch, T-W-I-C-A to uh, show your support for the program here. It's a really amazing system. They do hosting, but mostly they give you a UI, a set of tools, their WYSIWYG, their drag and drop. If you can use a mouse, you can create an amazing website. If you're a more sophisticated coder, you can get under the hood and get your coding on. But it's designed to be simple and painless for people who maybe aren't so sophisticated with the code. Hundreds of design templates allow you to give a nice, easy, well-designed interface to start with for the people coming to your website. And you can customize, customize in three, two, and you can customize any aspect of that. They have modules to help you build out a website, blog modules for importing or exporting your data from WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and TypePad. A forum builder that allows you to specify custom data you want to collect along with email addresses, a Flickr photo display, a Twitter widget so you can actually have your tweets display. Everything's integrated inside of there along with Google Maps, website tracking. They offer search engine optimization to help you get the traffic you want for your website. But one of the big things is the way they've architected a cloud architecture for hosting that automatically responds to major hits on your website. You get to the front page of Dig or Reddit or Engadget, it doesn't matter. Your site's going to stay up because the back-end tools at Squarespace are just as good as the ones that are facing you. And if you're on the go, they have a really nice iPhone app that allows you to log in your website, update it on the go, moderate comments, get notifications whenever new comments show up on articles on your website. It's pretty slick, and Squarespace is powerful. It's supporting some unbelievably big websites that are handling massive amounts of traffic, and it is ready for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, update it anytime from just about anywhere. You can score a 14-day free trial. Just go to squarespace.com slash twitch. That way we get credit for sending you there, and they keep helping sponsoring the program. You get a free account. No credit card is needed. Just try it out to build your website, squarespace.com slash twitch. We want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Podcast, Mr. Heron, you up for a, uh, an S, 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 a, a, a sad, sad hard drive problem? <laughs> yes, let's bring it on. Sam Tiger, aka Chris from Indiana, says I've got a. He has like six hard drives in his system, including a 320 gigabyte, 7200 RPM Western Digital SATA drive he pulled out of an old MyBook. He says this is the drive he's having problems with. It quit being detected by Windows and occasionally isn't recognized by the BIOS. I pulled the drive from the system and was about to throw it in the trash. Very sad because it hadn't backed up the data on this drive. When I saw on the label jumper pins 5 and 6 for SATA 1.5 mode, 
I thought, what the hell, let's try it. I put it back in the hot swap bay and sure enough, Windows detected it and it let me read from it. I'm in the process right now of copying everything off the drive. Windows is copying it over to another drive at an abysmable 45 megabytes per second. My question is this, do I wipe the drive and get out the trusty drill and drill holes in the platters and throw it in the trash, or do I keep it in the system and run it in 1.5 mode? How long do you think it will last in this mode? Thanks for your help, Chris from Indiana. You can buy notebook drives that are 320 gigabit SATA drives. Well, it's out of a MyBook, so it's probably a full-size drive. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm with Robert on this one. Um, drives start giving you trouble. Get the you get the data off of it if you can, and then round the file it. If you've had financial data on it, you should wipe the drive, either using something like Derek's boot and nuke or get out your trusty grinder or torch or torch. What's kind of funny is is you know, one terabyte drives are selling for like 65, 70 bucks over at Central Computer, which is our local computer store here totally. in Totally. You know what? I had my mic paused until just like a couple seconds ago. So let me just say that real quick. It was like, look, for for a three hundred twenty gig drive, you got the data off and that was the most important thing. But I wouldn't I wouldn't depend on that drive and it's 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 not. It doesn't cost much to replace that. So get it out of that system. Either either bump it up to a new drive, like you just mentioned, about one terabyte for sixty bucks or whatever it is nowadays, or larger, and you'll get better performance and reliability. And I wouldn't. I mean, format the drive before you finally get rid of it. But I wouldn't worry about drilling holes through it unless you want to. Uh, I would encourage other people not to use it because then they would look at it and go, "Holy cow, this is a completely messed up drive. It's got a hole through it." Uh, maybe that would probably be the only reason maybe to take a hammer to it, unless, unless you're super paranoid. But I, I personally don't believe unless you've got, you know, uh, multinational government corporations coming after you with millions of dollars, the average person's not going to be able to take that drive and pull any data off of it once it's been wiped, at least with a tool like, you know, like you mentioned, Derek's boot and nuke or, or even one of the new uh, key changers that will do it on the new SATA drives as well. That's just a quicker way to destroy all the data on there. It's considered a secure erase utility, I believe. And that's, uh, I think it's out of the Chicago, I want to say the Chicago Magnetic Resonance, or uh, I forget, that group that did the, uh, the tool that changes that SATA encryption key. So you don't actually have to wipe the whole drive. You just change the key, and it makes all the data useless at that point, which is really kind of nice. What was that? I love the concept of that, but I still want to, you know, degauss it or grind it or drill holes in it. Uh, somebody said a power magnetic device will clean it. Web ninety three twelve in the chat room. You need to have a very powerful magnet. If it's not a powerful enough magnet, you won't actually impact the data. Um, big neodymium magnets, the kind of like attach you to a refrigerator, attach your, you know, your child to a refrigerator, will erase them with like thirty seconds of, of sort of swirling them around on the outside of the case. But definitely be careful with that one. <laughs> I mean, look. A full reformat, not a quick format, but a full one will stop, I'd say, 99.9% .9 of the population from pulling any data off that drive at all. So I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. I mean, unless you've got criminal, uh, I don't, who knows, unless you've got activities. I still just, just run Derek's boot and nuke. It's, it's a free download. It, it doesn't totally. take that long. <laughs> and you know what? Sledgehammers are cheap, too, man. That's kind of fun. Just get a little frustration out and take a piece of hardware and uh, dispose of the shards properly. But And wear safety glasses. <laughs> you don't want platters flying or anything like that. But And do you want to read Jan's question? Sure. Uh, Jan says, hi guys, I was very disappointed to install my brand new SSD in my desktop only to discover that the BIOS takes 10 seconds to scan all the SATA devices in AHCI mode before actually starting the boot process from my lightning quick SSD. I've contacted the vendor and they indicate 
that is oh, that this long scan time for devices is standard in H, uh, ACHI mode. Can you recommend any motherboards which boot from a SATA device any quicker? Is SATA 3 also stuck with this long seek time? Signed, thanks, Jan. Interesting. Um, I will say the only problem I've run into recently with that, I, I've been using ACHI mode in, for all of my SATA drives for quite a while now, and I don't have a, an issue with it taking longer to detect. Um, scanning all the drives. I do always optimize the BIOS for selecting the specific boot drive and making that the primary drive and putting that at the top of the order of the boot list as far as the order of drives to look through, even above any optical drives. I'll put it as number one because I don't, unless I absolutely need to boot off of another drive, I don't bother. Uh, I would check that. I would also check to make sure your, your BIOS maybe has an update that's related to that as an issue. I, I'm about to reformat a system, though, because I ran into a problem, finally, with the new Service Pack 1 update from, for Windows 7, that I have a system now that literally takes, like, about five minutes to shut down and about 15 minutes to start back up. And it's hanging on something ever since I put that update in. And uh, once it's done booting, it's fine. But I'm wondering if that has any relationship to it at all. But um, if, if you are going to mess with enabling ACHI mode, which I should probably look up what the heck that actually stands for. I hate to guess, but uh, Wikipedia, save me now. Oh, Advanced Host Controller Interface. Uh, basically, it's great for SATA drives because it allows the BIOS then to take better control of that drive, especially for sleep functions and spinning the drive down when, when it's not needed and things like that. It tends to work really well. But if you make that change, you basically have to reinstall the operating system because the drive won't be readable once you do that. And that's the only thing to keep in mind if you go mucking about with that particular setting. But I don't have a straight answer for this person to say, Here, here's what's going on with your particular setup. Some I've noticed in some other boards you can actually turn off the scan, um, which can be incredibly useful. Um, and other motherboards won't let you do that. And I don't have a list of them off the top of my head of which ones to look for. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's really, really, really frustrated. Yeah, Ghost Machine just said in the forums, you need some new Sandy Bridge boards with the new fast BIOS. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, that Puget, that Puget Systems box we just reviewed uh, yesterday on the show, it should be airing soon. That had the most amazing boot up and shutdown and restart times of pretty much any system. And it was SSD primary boot drive, but wow, man, I mean, it's just so well optimized. And I, I, now I'm kicking myself for not going through their bio settings. They were using an Asus motherboard uh, for, um, I think it was a micro ATX or mini ATX motherboard. And uh, oh, um, now I'm really kicking myself for not seeing exactly what tweaks they did. But I'm pretty familiar with most of the things you need to do. And uh, I just kind of... Well, I, th I think the advice for Jan is, is make sure you've got your BIOS upgraded to the latest version. Look to make sure you have, you know, like the worst ones are RAID controllers where it's like trying to set up a RAID in the boot process and you don't have a RAID set up. Make sure the RAID controller is turned off. Make sure any IDE channels you aren't using are turned off. And if you can, um, you know, go through every format of the, or basically every section of the BIOS to see if there is an option to turn off the uh you know, any additional scans on that. Because it's really kind of irritating, you know, to do like, I remember remember when memory scans used to be part of the boot up of every machine. Oh. You'd be sitting there and then finally <laughs> somebody enabled, you know, BIOS to turn off the memory scan as part of quick boot. <laughs> if you do come across any terms or things in the BIOS that you're uncertain of, though, one of the best websites I've ever encountered that's been doing this sort of thing and explaining it to users forever is uh, Tech ARP. 
used to be called Adrian's Rojak Pot, I believe it was back in the day, but now it's just called Tech Arp. And they have a great uh, BIOS guide, optimization guide, and just definitions for all of that kind of stuff. And it's worth your time to take a look through their site if you do come across settings or things that you're just unsure of what they are or what, what the optimal setting might be for your particular setup. So it's a good, good site to check out. Gerhard writes in, I watch your show almost every week, and I have a question. I'm building a new computer, and it can only spend 1200 bucks, so I want an AMD. Should I go with a hex or six-core CPU or a quad-core? Does it truly make a big difference in something that does not overclock or do extreme gaming? Um, so multiple cores uh, work best on, well, there's certain things they do within like Windows 7 by allowing you to run multiple applications at the same time and better running the operating system. But once you get to quad cores, you've really got a lot going on. The, the like fifth and sixth core really come into play when you're running threaded applications. You know, like I, I remember like one of the most dramatic ones was uh, a 3D application. This was a thousand years ago when, when multi-threading applications, um, two cores, being able to assign a particular uh, element of, a, of an application uh, to basically, sorry, um, just found out my mic's too far away from my mouth. Three, <laughs> we're manipulating. Two. Yeah, 3D Max, I think, was one of the first multi-threaded 3D applications. So you could basically run every pixel that was being rendered in that to the next available core. And if you had a multi-core machine, this performance boost was dramatic, kind of amazing compared to what a single-core machine would do. Um, I think if, if you have a budget, I would definitely go with a quad-core over a, a six-core machine. You know what I mean? Unless you have an application that is multi-threaded in a way that's going to really take advantage of those additional two cores, I think you are fine with a quad-core AMD. Um, Dale. Yeah, not for gaming, especially. Yeah. I find that, you know, having many extra cores, really, there is not a significant benefit. There was, like, the big argument between should you, on the, on the Intel side, should you go i7 or i5? And most gamers that really get into it and benchmark it out will tell you i5 is plenty. And you don't need all of the additional cores specifically for that. But like you mentioned, encoding is really where it takes uh, full advantage of, of multiple threads, multiple cores to do everything from audio encoding with a program like DB Power Amp, which is actually kind of fun to watch when it'll dedicate, like, say, eight cores. Each core gets its own uh, individual thread for encoding a different title, and you can watch it just kind of go nuts with uh, all the audio tracks. Or video, too, and video is the big one as well. That's where multi-core really comes in, it comes in right. handy. We got a funny, uh, funny question from Ryan. He's been gifted a Power Mac G5 with a PowerPC 970FX processor, 2 gigs of DDR RAM, and an NVIDIA GeForce 5200 Ultra card. He says, I already own a fairly high-end desktop that I use for MATLAB and various simulation softwares, and the Mac will probably end up being a spare computer. The way I see it, I have two options. One, max out the DDR, I believe 8 gigs, install an SSD and call it a day. Two, start out a new project by tearing everything out and building from scratch. I'm sure it's no surprise that I'm itching to tear this thing apart, but the little angel on my shoulder is telling me to make do with the G5. What kind of performance do you think I can expect from the G5, and how long will I be able to get by with the PowerPC? Any bright ideas? Thanks again, Ryan. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, G5s are old and amusing and you know if you need a browsing machine that's never going to go down and you don't mind the fact that uh, I'm pretty sure PowerPC was stopped supported by OS 10 in Tiger which would be 10.4 um, I'm sure I'm going to see a flurry of activity in the chat room now that I've said that out loud um, 
You know, I would say if you like the case and you want to, you know, get a micro ATX board and strap it inside of that thing, um, <laughs> you know, go for a, you know, an i3 or Core 2 Duo or one of the AMD processors. Um, because I think by the time you install an SSD and max out the DDR, you'll be halfway to the cost of a, a new, like, entry-level $500 PC. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I loved the G5. I'm trying to remember, when, when did the G5 come out? Um I can never remember that. 2003. Yes, it was officially launched as part of Steve Jobs' keynote presentation in June 2003 at the Worldwide Developers Conference. Saw three revisions of the line before being retired in August 2006, which is basically the G5 was replaced by the uh, Intels, which was an awesome, awesome uh, introduction event. I've never heard so many people sound like they've been punched in the gut as when Steve Jobs said, we're moving to Intel. And there was this awesome intake of breath in the auditorium where they did that announcement. Um, yeah, you know what? If you want to have fun, I throw in, you know, you could throw an SSD on it, especially because you can reuse the SSD for another project later on. But I got to say, tear everything out, build from scratch. It's a good looking case. You know, you can get creative and put a motherboard inside of that and a PC in there. Because, um, yeah, there's just a power. It's going to, you know, web browsing, it's going to be okay. Operating system supports minimal. Man, I would just say. Strip it, dude. Embrace your inner freaking G5 ripping out and, and start with a fresh motherboard and a fresh GPU inside of there. <laughs> hey, what's the last time we've covered on any of the shows, like just installing an operating system? Uh, do, people, do people find that pretty easy to do nowadays? I mean, it, I think I find it second nature just because I do it, you know, once or twice a year to every system I own. So, But I, I, think, I think for a lot of people, a lot of the problems they encounter can be solved by just Mm -hmm. Starting clean and going through the BIOS, making sure it's updated and all the settings are optimized, and then getting the OS installed. And, you know, it, it really doesn't take that long. <laughs> and it feels good when you're done, and everything runs so fast and so clean. And besides that, that, uh, that, that last day before you do the full reformat, you pretty much go crazy installing any, any program you want without fear of, like, oh, I don't care what I'm about to do here. Just install anything. <laughs> and I'm about to blow the whole system out. As long as it's not going to, you know, crawl across your network and start screwing everything up, you'll be all right. But just stuff to think about. Something to think about. I don't know. It's <laughs> madness in the... Uh, madness I need more storage. Uh, That's what I need. My NAS is 97% full and four terabytes <laughs> consumed. That's all I'm worried about right now is buying more hard drives and either building my own NAS or maybe getting something like a five-bay Drobo or something. Something. I gotta make the upgrade soon. Yeah, you're actually running ridiculous. How many how many terabytes do you have full at this point? Four. And I'd say three quarters of it's video. And just <laughs> my video archive of all my Blu-rays and DVDs. Or the, at least the ones that I can fit on there now. <laughs> I'm being selective about what I rip. <laughs> you need one of the big Drobos. I, I do. I need the. I have a five, a four drive system right now with one drive I keep for a backup, and then I'm looking for a five drive, maybe with two terabytes per drive. It seems to be the affordable thing right now. I, I wish there were four terabyte drives just so I could stack those in there instead. But you know, it's coming around. I swear it's it's those Blu-ray discs. Those are the ones that just eat up like you know twenty to forty gigs at a pop. So oh oh, oh the pain, but uh. So we're going to take, uh, we're going to get one more question. This is right down Robert's alley before we check the chat room for any last home theater HD questions. Corey says, I'm looking for a, 
a good set-top box or mini PC. The PS3 browser is awful except for Twit. Hope the new site doesn't change that. It's hard to even find the Revision 3 links. Content seems to be an issue on a lot of box forms, i.e. Boxy. I'm looking at an Asus EPC with Atom and 320 gigabyte hard drive, wireless ABGN. Will this allow me to play games like Ricochet and Peggle? Can I surf the web on a boxy or is it all plugins? You need to be able to play CBC, Global, Standard, YouTube, Revision 3, Video. The PS3 video support in browser is probably the worst on the planet, I would agree. Short question, set-top box or mini PC for extensive video capabilities. Gaming is secondary as the PS3 is good at that. How many, how many uh, home theater set-top box, home theater PCs have you built in the, in the last year, Robert? <laughs> I have three? Three now, I think I've had. I started with just a standard PC that just I, I just started using it as a home theater PC. And then the Atom Ion box was the first fully dedicated from the ground up box that I built. And now I'm on the Sandy Bridge i3-based system that I use full-time now as my home theater, my DVR. It has this seat and tuner in it for the quad tuning cable. Um, you have to run Windows 7 to use that right now. Unfortunately, there's no, there's no other OS support that I am aware of for using that particular card. And I've I I have a I have a Tebow Series Three that's in mint condition that's just sitting there doing nothing now, and it's uh, getting lonely. But um, I would say with an Atom-based processor, I think web gaming you're going to be okay. Except you know maybe if you're trying to play Quake Live or something, it won't quite do it for you. But I think games like Peggle and Ricochet should be fine. Um, uh, it's still though I, I find that the Atom stuff, it, yes, it's very energy efficient, but what the, the performance you can get out of an i3 or an i7 or an i3 or an i5 based Sandy Bridge part will at least, it's not going to be much more wattage and you get so much more CPU power out of that, that it, it, it really kind of changes my whole opinion of, of the low end, not the low end, I don't want to make it sound like it's anemic, but it is kind of. The, the Atom parts, in my opinion, just aren't strong enough for most tasks, especially when it comes to 1080p decode, unless it's, unless it's GPU optimized which hopefully more of it is nowadays in terms of playback, um, it's a limiting processor. It's, it's kind of taking a step back in terms of the speed you might need to do other things besides just watching, uh, watching video. Although it also affects interface performance too. There's nothing worse than, sure, it can do any one task effectively, but when you start trying to multitask or switch between tasks, you start running into, oh, i got to wait here and there, and if I don't have an SSD in there, it'll slow the whole thing down even more. And it's just one of those things to keep in mind. I'm not as thrilled about going Atom-based processors or the, the ultra-low power processors compared to what you can get out of something like an i3 or an i5, especially when you can still maintain that, that new i5 box we just looked at from uh, Puget Systems. Uh, I think I was doing a full 1080p video encode to an, uh, an iPhone 4-style format, H.264. The box was consuming under full load about 90 watts or 95 watts. So, and, it's and it nothing. Would, and at desktop, and at the desktop or doing very little operation, it would get down into the 40 or 50-watt range. So that's a, that's a tiny light bulb, really. I, I'm not that concerned about you know, the ultimate in energy efficient. And you can still run these with very limited cooling, either very low power, uh, very limited uh, fan setups, or I don't know if you can go completely fanless yet, but I bet you can get pretty close to it. So I'm, I'm just not as thrilled with the, the whole Atom processor thing for general usage. I think you'll get, you'll get tired of the little hangups here and there down the road. And it's, I, I just, I'm more comfortable recommending it to somebody to spend their money on, say, a... Uh, a little faster processor, either either AMD or Intel. 
Yeah, it was kind of funny. Somebody in the chat room just asked, what do you think of the dual-core Ion home theater PCs you can get, you know, and 165 bucks for Newegg? If, I, if all I had was standard definition video, I'd think they were awesome. If you ever want to do anything bigger than 720p, they start to sort of trip on themselves. Um, I, I, if you're going to go that route, make sure you pick up an SSD because it really helps with just making that part feel a little faster. Although the price of SSDs really isn't, you know, that's, that's an expensive part right there, even for a relatively small one, so... Man, it's it's a tough balancing act there. I'd rather I'd rather go like the i3, i5, or the equivalent AMD part that, that gets you low power, just to have a little extra oomph. I, I love AMD hardware too, so if you can do it with their stuff, which I'm sure you can, I see a lot of people doing it, but um, that's that's the way I would go. I wouldn't even bother with Atom for for the long term. Looking say like a year from now, will you still be using the system? And uh, I found with my Atom Ion box. I don't like the two-minute boot-up time. I don't like the, the fact that when I'm trying to scroll through big menus in Windows uh, 7 Media Center, that it can get bogged down. Or when I'm displaying my DVD title thing with my movies, it's not as snappy. And when I hit the button on the remote, it's playing catch-up on the screen. That kind of usability stuff just gets to me. It does. We can't hear you. Oh, your audio's out, Pat. Did you mute Sorry. yourself? I there muted myself to try to cut <laughs> down on the, the, the noise in the background. Um, we're going to cut to some quick questions from the chat room before we go. McT says, Patrick, I have Fios TV and Internet. Can you suggest a tuner card that will allow me to pick up the digital channels without the set-top box? And I'm pretty sure you have no uh, – there's no cable card for, for Fios. I'm pretty sure you have to use the Fios set-top box to get any video out of the Fios system. Um, you should be able to capture off the back of the Fios box into a home theater PC or any of the other uh, – it, it, at the very least, component capture devices. We've seen Hophog makes a pretty good one for 720p capture. But I'm pretty sure there's no cable card equivalent, i.e. bringing video into your PC um, um, for Fios Internet. Seton's update that they just, well, last month, it's been out for a month now. They put this out, mm -hmm. I believe, on early February, the latest update for the Infiniti V4 card, at least, did include an update specific to Fios. So... Ooh. I'm not sure if it supports your particular brand, but you can at least go on their site and check to see the README on the latest hardware or firmware hardware update to see which which formats it is supporting. Um, I'd be I, I wish I had somebody I knew around me to uh, that has FiOS that actually I could test the system out on just to know for myself. I'd be curious to know because right now I feel it is it is it definitely works with cable systems, but right. doesn't work with anything else. Definitely not satellite, but. The update they just did put out is specific to FiOS. Yeah, addition DirecTV. DirecTV was supposed to do a, a like USB uh, device for home theater PCs, and they scuttled that before it ever saw the... It, I take it back. Some people saw and got hands-on with it, then they scuttled the project. Uh, Tar Hill says, Robert Heron, what is the best way to add HDMI ports to your HDTV? HDMI hub? If so, who makes a good hub? You know, that's definitely a hub, or what they call a, uh, a, a, an HDMI switch. It provides multiple connection ports with one output, or if you get one that provides multiple outputs, say you have two displays, maybe you're running a flat panel on a projector, you get something called a matrix switch, which will allow you to then distribute that signal better, I guess, or, or to multiple, multiple outputs if you need to. So if, you, if you're dealing with more than one display, look for a matrix switch. If you're only dealing with just one display, a standard HDMI switch is going to do you just fine. 
Uh, monoprice.com has a lot of very affordable ones. I haven't actually had any of their latest and greatest in. I have a rather plain switch from them, but it actually supports auto port switching. It'll sense when a device turns on and, and switch to that, and the ports are prior, prioritized so that uh, I usually keep my cable box on the, on the port number one so that if any of the other devices get enabled, it will switch over to that, and when those devices turn off, it'll go back to port one, which is kind of nice. That way I don't even need the remote control to use it, although most do support full IR commands, so if you're using something like a Harmony remote or um, other, other types of remotes like that, or even 12-volt triggering systems, if you're really going out there and doing like home, home control, uh, they're supported as well. I want to say there's probably some good brands on Amazon too, but I need to do a little investigation to see there. I know um, I used to love the one Oppo made. That was my last favorite one, but I, don't, I believe that's yeah. discontinued at this point. Um, Oppo discontinued their switch, unfortunately. Um, that was really good. Hey, uh, Good Sound says, what about HD Base T? Any TVs or monitors support it yet? Um, no. <laughs> oh. I am noticing, though, that all of the new HDMI cables, if you go shopping for an HDMI cable on somewhere like Amazon or wherever, uh, you're going to find that most of the cables now are, are including the Ethernet uh, feature that's part of HDMI 1.4, but the cables now are don't pay extra for Ethernet or audio return. It seems like everyone building cables now is just putting that in their cable just to be done with it. So there's no reason to spend extra for that. And I don't know many TVs that are actually supporting it yet, but I'm sure that'll become a little more popular where basically your TV can act like a, an internet hub or a, like, a, like a router almost for all of your net connected devices. So basically you could run that if your TV is Wi-Fi enabled or it has Ethernet running into it, you'd be able to stream that Ethernet signal out through the HDMI to devices, say like your game consoles and other set-top boxes that might need that internet connection. And now that the standard's done and the cables are being are, are available... I'm willing to bet somebody's going to do something with that probably this year, if not 2012 for sure. But the cables are out there, which is always good to know. And with that, unless there's one last question in the chat room, I think we're going to call it, ladies and gentlemen. Robert Heron, thank you so much for joining us on Twitch this week in Computer Hardware this week. Your regular co-host, Ryan Shrout, the man, the myth, the benchmarking legend, will hopefully not be burnt to a crisp. Ryan does not tan, and he is in Jamaica with a lot of sun at a wedding. So I'm hoping he kept the hat on, zinked himself up, and stayed out of the sun as much as possible because that was a concern we were talking about in the last episode about whether or not he was going to get torched. But we want to thank everybody who's in the chat room today and everybody who's watching live for being so supportive as we worked out my mic issues. Um, I will be having a new headset both at home and at work uh, next week. I apologize for that. And again, thanks to Robert Heron for joining us in Ryan's absence. I'm Patrick Norton, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again. You've been watching Twitch this week in computer hardware. <laughs>